Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. Look, I know you want to get to the podcast, so I'm going to keep this short. No, when it comes to things short. <laughs> Go on. I'm five, five. helping Oliver. When it comes to opera, we're the only ones bringing you everything you need to know about the art form, the people, and the stories every damn week. And you always pronounce them so well. Check it out. <laughs> five bucks buys an ad on social media. Ten bucks covers our website for a month. And twenty bucks makes a hundred lapel pins. So there are like maybe a hundred people in this world that have a lapel pin. So we want to double that number. Seriously, right. 20 bucks. That's less than what Oliver spends each week on light-bodied red wines, whatever they are. <laughs> like Gamay, you know, like a Cru Beaujolais, you know. Don't think it can give? Yes, you can. Simply review us on Apple Podcasts, share our Facebook posts, or retweet us. Most of all, keep listening to America's Talk radio show about opera. Oh. Okay, that was too many calls to action. So the main call to action is give us money, because that's obviously how you can help us. The other thing you can do is review us on iTunes, is that what you said? So if you don't feel like giving us money and you don't feel like spending precious time typing, what you can do is just click that share button when you see our post on Facebook, and you could like our page, actually. If you like our page, that helps us get to more people because Facebook is evil, and it basically helps us see your friends. Most of all, <laughs> keep listening to America's Talk radio show about opera. Enjoy the podcast. And retweet, because Toby loves that. <laughs> Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, Let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's Talk radio show about opera, period. Here in the Lakeside Studio, we are live on WNUR 89.3 FM and HD, Northwestern, Evanston, Chicago, I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined tonight by Oliver Camacho and guest host, Catherine O'Shaughnessy. All right, tonight we join the hometown team and talk live with in-studio guest Ashley Magnus, the general director of Chicago Opera Theater. And then in Chalk Talk, an article in the Washington Post argued that, quote, to save opera, let it die. We'll talk you through that rather dark headline. Plus, in the two-minute drill, a legendary tenor exit stage right. And, of course, you get all your uh, opera headlines as well in the two-minute drill. You can also call us on air. Get your voice heard, 847-866-WNUR is our number in studio. Get your hot takeout on the latest opera news stories, 847-866-9687. You can tweet us at Opera Box Score. Tobias Wright, no doubt sitting on his sofa at home. Ready to get your tweet? You can post on our Facebook page as well. Oliver Camacho, great to have you here. Yeah, so we are fifty percent female today, and I'm wondering Ooh. if you're going to ask us about sports. I am certainly going <laughs> to ask about sports. Catherine O'Shaughnessy in the studio as well here. Thanks for hanging us with us tonight, Kathy. Hello, it's great to be back. So, Kathy, sports. The Bears <laughs> played the Raiders yesterday in London. I predicted the Sun Times headline perfectly. I knew it was going to say London Fog. And it did say London Fog. The Bears blew Congratulations. a 21-17 game with two minutes to Can go. Can you explain fourth. to me why they're in Europe? Well, it's because the NFL is expanding the franchise into English-speaking Europe. They've they been playing in, the, in London they for don't like want our violent football. <laughs> <laughs> they love violence. Are you yeah, kidding me? they love better. They love more violence than ours has. Rugby is a very <laughs> scary sport. <laughs> it's the Rugby World Cup but right now. Do they now. have as many concussions in rugby as we have? And oh no, there's fewer injuries in rugby because there's no pads. So these guys, they they take <laughs> care of their bodies. 
Hmm. I don't weird. understand, but sure. Let's talk some opera. Thank <laughs> <laughs> God. How about we root for the home team? Baseball season's underway. Oh my gosh, how dated is that song? Cubs <laughs> missing the postseason yet again. Oliver Camacho here with Catherine O'Shaughnessy and our guest. Ashley Magnus of Chicago Opera Theater. And let's get this right. It's the Stefan Edlis and Gail Neeson, general director of Chicago Opera Theater. <laughs> Somebody paid good money to have Thank, that. Come. That's right. <laughs> Thank you. That's correct. <laughs> Thank you for coming on Opera Box Score. So we talked about you when uh, Douglas Clayton stepped down and you came up and we didn't know what to say about it. We really were not into gossip here, but um, you're here now. I am. <laughs> that is accurate. No, I'm so glad to be here. Um, I've been in the industry for a little over a decade, and um, I'm excited to be, obviously, in this community and at uh, Chicago Opera Theater in particular. And you're a woman. You know, I am. <laughs> Thank you for noticing. Oh, you're welcome. I know. I'm really perceptive about stuff like that. So I, you know, I hate that I have to ask this question because it's so stupid, but you know, your organization now it has an artistic director who's female and an executive director who's female. So that puts you, your organization, in the minority. Sure, uh, and a board president that's female. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Come on, give us one, <laughs> The please. bases are loaded. <laughs> so what has it been like to uh, be an all-woman organization? I know you guys don't have men at all anymore. That's like, right. you got rid of all them. <laughs> that's right. You know, we, uh, we got a few. Um, <laughs> you know, honestly, um, we, Catherine and I were talking about this a little bit, too. Um, it's In your secret women, women meetings. That's that right, said. yeah, <laughs> that we attended before we, we came this. here. Yeah. <laughs> Um, you know, it's been, uh, it's, it's been really great. It's been a pretty incredible team. We actually, um, haven't had a lot of turnover in the, in the core team, um, in, in general. So I've been, uh, with the organization about four years and, uh, we have a pretty killer team. Um, I think that, uh, everyone's been really supportive, um, of this female, of this matriarchy over <laughs> at Chicago <laughs> Opera Theater. Um, so I've been super grateful for that. But. So here's the question I have to ask. Like, what are some specific things that you think an all-women team brings to the industry? And, like, I know I I sound like a jerk when I'm talking about this, but, like, I have been in very white spaces and very male spaces my whole life. So I understand what it's like to be the minority, but I'm also part of the patriarchy at the same time. So <laughs> That's we forgive you. <laughs> so I just want to know, like, how you feel, like, the organization, the culture might be different or how you relate to other organizations or how you relate to your your team or how artists perceive you when you guys when you bring in artists from like Nathan Gunn for example is coming you know so talk about these things oh man um <laughs> well I have to preface this with um you know like I said um all women are not a generality so mm -hmm, uh mm -hmm. so we can't uh you know speak for all women here and it's not all the same but um, in particular, what I've noticed about um, about our team and a lot of my colleagues across the industry is that um, a lot of women to get here, statistically, we are still in the minority at the top. And um, to get here, we've had to uh, hustle a little harder. Mm -hmm. We've had to, um, in a lot of cases... Uh, prove ourselves a lot more to get where we are. Well, and you're so, on Apple Box Score now, so you've, you've pretty much <laughs> that's pretty much proven, made it. Thanks. Yourself. <laughs> yes, 
Definitely. This was my goal, actually. So Welcome I can to the retire. big leagues. Yeah. Um, no, but uh, you know, I like to I like to think it, especially our our matriarchy over yeah. here um, can out hustle anybody, and I think that um, being able to lead by example and mm-hmm. um, really foster an environment that um, supports that and also supports leading from any chair is something that. Um, that I think a lot of my female colleagues I've observed nationally, um, it's a quality that they espouse with their companies as well. Yeah, you said a little bit earlier before we went on air about uh, amplifying other voices and the consensus consensus building and some soft skills. Can you address those again, just for our audience? Yeah, of course. So, um, so this is something that's statistical. And again, um, there are plenty of George loves stats that probably have. Talk about language. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but um, men like numbers. Generally, oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> generally, actually, we're pretty good at numbers too. Uh, that's a misnomer. But um, but uh, also, um, we're pretty good at um, leading teams because we can. I, I personally am a big believer in servant leadership, mm-hmm. and um, women in general, although I, again, I hate this, um, women in, in general are pretty good consensus builders and also, um, uh, are pretty good at letting other people be heard and, and getting people on board and really buy in, which is critical in the business of opera since there, are, it takes so many different, uh, voices at the table, you know, singers and otherwise, um, to make any of this happen. No, I, I totally agree with you. And I'm not trying to make light of this cause it, I think it is interesting. And I, I don't know if you have any, sort of a specific anecdote of how you saw something done when it was a different type of leadership as opposed to how you might approach something or how it just naturally happens because you're working with, you know, Lydia Yomkovskaya, who is also a woman. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Kathy is giving me the dirtiest <laughs> look. <laughs> They're just like wide-eyed, yes, of course. Yes. <laughs> Tell us what it's like. Oh, man. I think I think what is interesting and... um. You know, I, I'd be curious to to hear more experiences around the table on this. But um, at least in, in my experience as a woman in the industry, um, I've certainly observed mm-hmm. that um, I still have to do a lot more. When I walk into a room, I don't always have the look that people are expecting, mm-hmm. right? And um, sometimes I have a lot more uh, of a hurdle to get over than some of my male colleagues who mm-hmm. perhaps are less experienced than me. Um, in getting buy-in and, you know, sometimes people, uh, I have to prove myself more, um, to get people to, uh, to give me the benefit of the doubt. Then I see them offer it very openly to, um, to male colleagues that have, you know, done nothing to, to prove themselves in that moment either. But, um, sometimes are able to skate by a little bit cause they, they have the right look. I, I mean, I feel like. There are stories in there, and I won't press any further. But <laughs> Thank like, you. I have stories, and I, it's not about me today. But I, I do have experiences that are very specific to being, uh, you know, a member of at least three different minority groups, yeah. and how I've had to navigate um, spaces and organizations, and uh, to be taken seriously, yeah. and uh, to combat implicit biases and racism. Uh, so I feel you, and like I know I like this is like a t- this really stupid conversation that we're having, but I do feel like we should talk about these things, and I do want to hear the great things that happen because there are different voices at the table. You know? Sure, sure, sure. Kathy, do you have anything before we move on to the next question? Well, I just wanted to mention that you talked about how we have extra hurdles to go over, and there's a certain sense in which that's like we've have great hurdle training. 
that other people <laughs> who don't face those hurdles, you know, if they don't face them on a regular basis, when they do, those hurdles can trip them. <laughs> mm-hmm. And um, so there's a certain amount, like, I feel like women are put through the paces, but that develops a really great skill set. Um, the other thing I kind of wanted to add was, the, and I would love for Ashley to, to add a little bit here on this too, is there was a real change for me, not necessarily as being a female conductor, but working on a largely female team. That was kind of eye-opening to me because before that, I was definitely one of those people It's like, I'm a woman and as long as I don't let that get in my way, it doesn't seem to. And it wasn't until I worked with women and all of a sudden, like, I faced a room with, like, I was, somehow there was resistance that suddenly wasn't there. And I, that's when, how, when I realized the first time how different it could be. Um, and I wonder if that's... Um, if you experience that at all working with uh, COT with so many women in powerful positions there. It, it definitely. Um, I think there's a bit of a shorthand, which is kind of nice. <laughs> and there, um, you know, the, at least with each other, you know, we don't uh, necessarily have as much posturing as, as sometimes occurs in, in um, other environments. I think the other cool thing I wanted to touch on on this topic is, um, is again, statistical. We talked about how um, when you look at the stats, um, you know, Opera America um, divides up opera companies by budget size. And, um, you know, they, the Women's Opera Network through Opera America did a really cool kind of survey of um, how many women are in top positions at all of the, all of the member companies throughout the country. And um, as you, you know, at the top, there's only one or two at um, top of budget level organizations. But as you go um, down the, the budget sizes, um, the tier four, five and, and six, I believe there is a six, um, are actually majority run by women once they get down to those levels. And, and a lot of um, there's a lot of uh, hypotheses on why that is. But one of the theories is that women are creating their own companies. They're creating their own opportunities um, to be able to to, you know, if they haven't been given the opportunity, they're going to make it. And I think that's that's a pretty cool story. And that's very true. You see it in Chicago's opera scene. I'm thinking Third Eye, Thompson Street, uh, Chicago Fringe Opera. All of these have um, leading ladies or company, yeah. non-binary individuals. It's not not your traditional cis men right. running the company. And it's it's kind of a, as I said, it's kind of a treat to be able to work in this diverse community because you do hear a lot of voices Um a lot of different angles, a lot of different ways of organizing things. Well, that's and, a great way to, yeah. to pivot actually to the next question is about how do you see Chicago Opera Theater and how they fit in the Chicago community as well as in the national scene of opera? Absolutely. Um, I think that, um, and we were we were talking about this a little bit before, I think that uh, the opera scene in Chicago in particular is incredibly rich. And I think that makes us a really special place for for companies um, of all sizes that we just discussed. I mean, obviously, we've got um, Lyric Opera's sort of the world class um, top tier opera company that's putting on a lot of the classics at the at the level that people expect and really want to consume. Um, but it also creates a lot of freedom for other companies to really specialize. Um, before I came to Chicago Opera Theater, it was actually at Utah Opera. And um, I knew about Chicago Opera Theater's reputation for doing really imp- interesting repertoire and um, contemporary repertoire. And that was something I always wanted to be a part of. And um, 
coming here and getting to do that is pretty special. I know that um, a lot of cities have one game in town mm-hmm. and um, they have um, a lot more constraints on the kind of programming that they can do. And so um, I definitely think people are envious of um, the freedom that Chicago Opera Theater has to program you know, uh, basically contemporary things that we think are a part of the canon and should be part of the conversation here in Chicago. And, um, you know, as long as it's good, right, we can keep doing it. Yeah. Well, can you just be explicit about what type of repertoire Chicago Theater is going to be producing going forward? Totally. So, um, you know, there are so many pieces. I know we we talked a little bit about um, Moby Dick, actually, this past season. Um, is a great example of an American opera that's part of the canon um, nationally and has had performances all over the country, critically acclaimed, and yet had not been done yet in Chicago. Um, We have the opportunity to do that, which I think is pretty incredible. Everest is another one of those pieces that we have coming up this season. Um, There are also pieces that have never been done in Chicago but are worthy of producing, like um, Rachmaninoff's Aleko Mm -hmm. or like um, Tchaikovsky's Yolanta. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we we again have the opportunity to bring that here uh, because we only do about three productions a year, uh, narrowing it down to pieces that we think are a part of the canon, but have yet to come to Chicago is really hard. Mm -hmm. Um, And we're trying to throw a couple world premieres in there here and there. But um, you have a world premiere this year. We do. So we have a piece called Freedom Ride by Dan Shore. Taswell Thompson is directing um, the, the piece is, um, it was written at Xavier University in, okay. in New Orleans. Is that a historical black college? I don't know. It is. Okay. It is. And, uh, <laughs> it takes place, it takes place about a fictitious group of freedom writers in 1961 New Orleans centering around, um, this student named Sylvie Davenport, who's deciding whether or not she's going to join the freedom rides and all the risks that come with that. And the music is inspired mm-hmm. by the music of New Orleans in 1961. Mm-hmm. Um, it's pretty incredible stuff. We actually are doing Um, an orchestra workshop in partnership with Mass Opera in Boston next month um, to keep ironing out the kinks there. And and then the piece will have its premiere at the Studebaker in February. Um, But that's, you know, that's one example of a really exciting world premiere. Oh, it sounds like that's going to give you a chance to employ more African-American singers. Absolutely. Was that a deliberate choice or reason for choosing this piece definitely and in fact um and in fact we have um a lot we have a pretty diverse cast for our first show too Mm -hmm. so um you know because of the programming choices that we made this year but also the casting choices we made um for our first show as well um we actually have just under 50 percent alana artists this season could you go over that anagram again i know i should know it but (laughs) oh no i'm gonna She has a piece of paper now. I She's right. <laughs> I know it is. Uh, oh, so much no, it's okay. It, I, it's I won't put you on this. Thank you, Kathy. Do you know um, what it is? I know it's well. It's well, African American, Latinx, um, Asian maybe, Asian, yeah. and Native Native American. Native, Native American. Okay. I've never even heard that acronym. So oh, I'm really? Yeah. It's something that's than me. You are the straight white male in the room, so I <laughs> that doesn't surprise me. <laughs> Here's what I have heard of, though. This, this conversation really reminds me of this idea called the feminine economy. I don't know if anybody on the panel has heard of this book. It's a book by Jennifer Armbrust called The Feminine Economy, and it, it contrasts the feminine economy with the masculine economy. And there's this beautiful little three-by-five index card, which is part of this book. My, my wife, who is a... Uh, runs a small business, which is all woman-owned, gave me this beautiful little card that talks about what these feminine values and these feminine principles are for business. I cannot recommend it highly enough. 
You know, these conversations always make me torn between going, yay, they're praising us, and just facepalming and going, these gender roles, why? (laughs) Completely split. (laughs) Second. (laughs) No, I mean, but like to get back to the original point, um, what I was trying to elicit, but maybe not in such a graceful way, is that I do find that when there are, when there's different leadership, it creates different conversations. And there are assumptions that are we 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 can now have new assumptions that you will take a, a harassment, for example, claim more seriously, or you are more aware of um, diversity in casting, or you're more aware of a story uh, that's in an opera being you know insensitive, and maybe we need to address the you know the text itself here, and like should we choose this piece because that's very whatever has an implicit bias something like that, which I think doesn't happen when it's just all the same people yeah. doing the same operas all the time. Totally. So. It doesn't happen in an echo chamber. No. Yeah. And, 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 you know, like historically there has been kind of a dominant viewpoint, yeah. right. And um, having these different voices at the table, you know, it doesn't mean that that was the only viewpoint, even yeah. looking at yeah. historical opera and what kind of survives in the canon. That's not all there was. Yeah. Right? Where there's an uproar when somebody doesn't want to wear a blackface at La Scala, you know? Mm-hmm. So, so um, with the little bit of time we have left, could you give us a preview of Everest and Aleko, uh, which is the production that's just around the corner, right? It's, it's Absolutely. When, is that, when does that happen? November 16th and 17th okay, so are the performances. Time to think exactly. About this, yeah. You do. Um, <laughs> so this piece, both of these pieces are pieces we were incredibly excited to bring to Chicago. Um, Joby Talbot and Jean Shear's Everest is based on, um, it's about a 60-minute piece, 70 minutes, mm-hmm. something like that. And that's why it needed to be paired with something. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is, um, it's based on the same events as Jonathan Krakauer's Into Thin Air. Um, I don't know if any of you have read it. It's gripping I see it stuff. at Barnes & Noble all the time. Oh. It's always, like, recommended. It's damn good. <laughs> it's damn good. But, um, it's a pretty incredible story. I think there's a documentary and a movie as well based on the same events. Um, it's the biggest tragedy to happen on the mountain mm-hmm. since it was first summited. It happened in 1996. Mm-hmm. Um, there were a couple climbing groups uh, going for the summit that May, I believe. And um, they actually lost eight people on the mountain that day. It was a bunch of little things that can go wrong, but at 26,000 feet, little things equal death, you know, mm. enough of those little things happening. Um, and uh, it's it's gripping human stories, and that's really the kind of stuff we like to tell. Um, so all of the characters in the opera are real people, mm-hmm. um, some of them alive, some of them no longer but um the the it's a big piece so we've got you know an orchestra of um 60 plus we've we're partnering with Apollo Chorus um it's going to be Apollo Chorus is a um professional community chorus as that way to describe it. it's a gigantic yes. chorus here in Chicago they've actually been around for a long time definitely uh, yeah. oh and, we're so excited to work with them yeah. and so it'll be about 150 people just wall of sound on stage mm-hmm. um we're, we've paired it with Rachmaninoff's Aleko. Everybody kind of knows um, Aleko's Cavatina. That's a baritone aria that gets mm-hmm. sung, you know, on recitals, even in, in Chicago yeah, all so, the yeah. time. Yeah. Um, but uh, we are staging the full piece for the first time in Chicago, which is pretty cool. We're partnering with ANA Ballet as well, so there's going to be a dance component. But um, what we've done, and this will be at the Harris Theater, is we are incorporating the orchestra and the chorus into the sets. So, um, in you know, in our in our business, we call that semi-staged. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but um, it's really going to be fully staged, semi-decorated, is how we like to say. Um, Bunting. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so, well, so um, so the the orchestra and the chorus are going to be incorporated into the sets and the projections, and um, and then but of course the principals. Do they get to go home every night, or they have to stay up there like? They, they, you know what? It's it's only two days, so they stay up there. <laughs> okay. they, they are the mountain, like and they are committed. Right exactly. <laughs> That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. But um, now the uh, the principals will be costumed. We have a couple of principals back actually from Moby Dick. Mm-hmm. So um, Andrew Bidlack will be singing. He actually premiered this role of Rob Hall with Everest, and I think is saying it with a few of the other opera companies that have okay. put this on. And um, Alexei Bogdanov oh. is um. Is our Aleko, yeah. and he's also Beck Weathers in the production of Everest. Oh, okay. She's singing two roles. That's right. Okay. And so okay. is Andrew. So Andrew's okay. doing Rob Hall and the young gypsy, the tenor role in Everest. Okay. Awesome. Or in Aleko, rather. But yeah. And is Lydia conducting both? She okay. is. She is. Lydia will be conducting. She's incorporated into the set, too. Yeah. They actually had a fake little Lydia in the set model. Um, and so she's got her own little piece that she's right in the middle of. Oh, it's going to be pretty cool. I have to look cool. out for that. That's like I an love Easter doing egg productions for where I get to be a part of it somehow. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I just don't know how that woman does everything that she does. Like, I just look at her oh, yeah. schedule. It's like, it's insane. Oh, you know? she's incredible. Yeah, and she has a kid. Yeah, I, and of, she does not, not business drink coffee. Audience, but she does. She doesn't drink coffee. Doesn't drink coffee. But she drinks vodka because she's <laughs> Russian. So. <laughs> she did teach us the proper way to do that once. Okay. <laughs> well, Ashley Magnus, Kathy, before we let her go, do you have... Do you have anything else that you wanted to well, ask? I just wanted to add that the Everest, I'm so excited to see it. I encountered one aria of that a couple of years back um, in Dallas, and the music will haunt you. Hmm. So I'm so excited that it's coming to Chicago. Great. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Oh, good. We are, too. Yes. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on Opera Box Square, and we'll uh, be sure to get the word out for Chicago Opera Theater. Thank you so much. Here's a quote to save opera, let it die. Well, that's one way to do it, and that's next. Only on America's Talk radio show about opera. It's on WNUR 89.3 FM and HD, Northwestern, Evanston, Chicago. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Support for Opera Box Score is provided by VisitPhilly.com. Looking for a deal when you visit Philadelphia? The Visit Philly Overnight Hotel Package has great perks that make it easy to come and explore the city of brotherly love. The worst thing about Philly is the sports fans. They're just dreadful, dreadful people. You know that they invited us to come to Philadelphia, <laughs> and now you're pooping on them? I love Philly sports oh, we fans. The they are you're fabulous on people. <laughs> they are so enthusiastic, okay. those Philly sports fans. Well, I wonder God if the sports them. fans even knew that they were their taxpayer money was going to some opera queer. Undoubtedly. <laughs> I'm sure they were there. Book the Visit Philly Overnight Hotel Package for a fall getaway and get overnight accommodations as well as free hotel parking and awesome seasonal perks worth hundreds of dollars. Do you get a Philly cheesesteak in that as well? Um, That's I think you have to go to the website and find out. I don't think anyone in Philly eats a cheesesteak just like no one in Chicago eats deep dish. Well, it depends. If they sell it at Wawa's, I'm pretty sure they do. Oh, I went to a Wawa's. It <laughs> Did was you? Not, you have to. It was not something I wanted to eat. Get out. Yeah. It was like if a CVS sold food, basically, you know? I don't want to think about that. But they were also playing music really loud. I don't feel like at CVS you hear music. But at Wa- at the Wawa, it was like there was almost like a band back there. It wasn't a band, obviously. Wait, there's a live band and food, and it's a CVS. <laughs> yes. But I hear that actually in Philadelphia, they eat the pork and broccoli rub sandwich. Like, that's oh. a thing. So I would eat so that. It's the new Philly yeah, cheese I don't. Steak. I don't need all that cheese because, you know, I need to look cute. 
Um, start your adventure with free tickets to the National Constitution Center and the Museum of the American Revolution. The rest is just steps away. You don't eat cheese because you're lactose intolerant. I mean, yeah, I'm intolerant. Well, you don't things, tolerate like, most things. Yeah. But um, the, the, <laughs> like red-haired, the cheese, short coasts. <laughs> <laughs> the cheese definitely makes me less cute. Um, and I can't sleep with somebody if I've had cheese. The Visit Philly Overnight Hotel package includes a restaurant card that gives you $25 towards select restaurants in Iron Chef Jose Garces' restaurant group, The Garces Group. Plus, you can ride the Flash bus, and that's P-H-L-A-S-H-A-H, Flash, like fat, uh, for an easy way to get to historic attractions and cultural institutions anytime for free. That's awesome. I'm glad they're promoting mass transit. Yeah, absolutely. Um, for more details, go to visitphilly.com and find Visit Philly Overnight Hotel Package on the Plan Your Trip tab. Just click Show Up and Wander. Um, I didn't click anything with Toby when we were there. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. Thanks for hanging out with us tonight on America's Talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. George Cedarquist here with Oliver Camacho and our guest co-host, Catherine O'Shaughnessy. We were just talking to Ashley Magnus, the general director at Chicago Opera Theater, and um, Kathy Alana. We were talking about Alana mm-hmm. earlier. This should not have been hard to figure out. Alana. <laughs> Did you look it up? African, Latino, Asian, Native American. Okay. That's what it stands Native for. Native American gets two, but the, all the rest of them only get one. Yeah, I guess so. It, it can also stand for the Alabama Association of Nurse Anesthetists. Oh, well, that's a little bit different. That would, that's... T- I don't think we can cast those people. Not in, not in number. No, that would make for a very sleepy opera, <laughs> I suppose. I, anyway. Uh, hey, Olivia Giovetti was writing a guest article or op-ed, really an article for the Washington Post. This was suggested to us by a listener, actually. Thanks for that suggestion. Um, back in August, Kathy, we were do you want to attempt break, so. to uh, synthesize this? Oliver back, of course, in uh, the Lakeside studio as well, along with myself and Kathy. Yeah, it's quite an interesting article. Um, and it, I think it's basically making the case that Opera, we're, we're seeing all these things, in, these controversies in the opera world right now about singers darkening their skin to sing Ethiopian characters or um, various people you know, d- being me tooed out of the business. And, it, it, and there's an argument in the article that that style of opera, the style of opera that treasures the tradition over the people within it, has to die okay, in can- order for opera to continue. Can we just, be, I, I love where this is going, but just for the audience who may not have the article open, can we say the name of the article and sort of its abstract idea? George? George absolutely. Uh, Once again, the article is called To Save Opera, Let It Die. It's from the August 21st edition of the Washington Post, written by Olivia Javetti, suggested to us by one of our listeners, actually, from got, Woody got in Washington, D.C. Got that part, but what is, what is sort of like the premise of the article that I'm asking? The premise of the article, as Kathy was saying, is that essentially all these things have happened in the summer of 2019, right? Anna Netrebko coming under scrutiny for darkening her skin to play uh, the title role in Verdi's Aida. Uh, Domingo being accused of sexual harassment multiple times over 30 years. And the argument here is like, we essentially, we need to get rid of 
these stars. We need to get rid of the essential repertoire that's done in historical ways. We need to sort of burn all that down and let it go in order to recapture what she calls, Javetzi calls, a dying audience, dying because the ticket sales are declining or dying and because the audience is aging and therefore dying. Okay, Kathy, thank you. Sorry. It's all right. Um, It's an interesting article, except for the fact, except for the word dying, I think, because I had a mentor once tell me that when we stop changing is when we die. That life is always about adapting and shifting as, as, you know, and engaging our surroundings. And when we stop doing that, that's when we die. So the idea that having to change our model, having to allow our model to incorporate modern ideas, to stagings to more reflect modern life, to, for me to see that as dying is kind of like speaking a foreign language. Um, but I generally agree with the model. Just a linguistic thing. Like, do we have to go for this shock headline? <laughs> well, I mean, it's in the newspaper business, so like, oh, shock so is always going to be part of it. But uh, here's the thing: yeah, I, 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 I do quibble with that word "dying." I, I don't know if the art form is dying, and, and certainly not the way that she defines it. I mean, here's the other thing, and actually, this goes straight back to the feminine economy that I was talking <laughs> about in Act oh, One no. of the show. I mean, you can tell I'm addicted to this now. Is that growth? is not linear, right? Right. Growth is, is cyclical, and, and growth is uneven. When you look at how trees grow, trees don't grow the same amount every year. They don't grow at the same times every year. And there's this idea that, like, we're expecting growth to be extremely linear and that that's, that's not the way that this business is going gonna, is gonna to grow. It's not the way that this art form is going to change and i think the article is is i suppose it's um suggesting some sort of model where the phoenix rises from the burnt ashes but i think that model is very overrated (laughs) i think um that's it works every once in a while but generally there has to be some sort of organic shift and as you i completely agree not linear but it might be organic in the sense that there are other sprouts from different angles that that join the jungle rather than burning it down and, re- you know, and hoping the plants come back. Um, and I think you, you see a lot of that with works of Shakespeare, for example. No, I mean, very rarely do you see Shakespeare performed as Shakespeare would have seen it. We almost never hear original pr- pronunciation. The costumes just get too expensive. Women perform nowadays, which he wouldn't have expected. And, um, and yet when we try to move an opera production to a different time and place, there's a lot of surprise and, and um, distaste. And I don't know, the, the article mentions that there are a lot of people like, who've joined a Facebook group against you know, modern opera productions. And I kind of want to say there's a difference between a really good <laughs> modern opera production and like an opera production that's a vehicle for the producers. And maybe the people who are in this group haven't seen the former. Yeah, I, I the, the Facebook thing, the Facebook group against modern opera productions has sixty thousand members. I pretty sure I know some I, of them. I, probably, <laughs> I don't know if they don't have anything better to do with their time. Listen, in the article, she says, "quote Perhaps it's time to decentralize the star system that currently fuels opera. There are plenty of composers, performers, and directors who manage to reflect on the canon even as they create works that speak to audiences today." I mean, it's a pretty vague statement to begin with uh i'm all for parody 
I'm all for equity. God knows, right? I I think that every more people should get a chance. But decentralizing the star system, I, first of all, I don't know what decentralized means. Well, I think it means having less star quality necessarily in your roster. Like having more, maybe more, <laughs> we're going to talk about Victoria Grigolo soon, I'm sure, but um, having, there's so many talented tenors. We don't need to have Grigolo singing everywhere. I think that's what they're saying. But on the other hand, we also have to think about the knowledge, the entry-level knowledge and how to make it approachable. And the more names that there are being bandied about, the harder it is to know who they are. The more of a kind of an insider you have to be to know what to expect when you go to the opera. So what, what are you arguing for? Um, I'm not sure that, de like, that getting rid of the, s the star quality is an answer. I think it's something to, be, to work for, but I don't think it should be burned to the ground. I think um, that the star quality is one of the hooks that people, that will, th that kind of thing is what gets people in to some extent and, and makes them choose to go spend their night doing that rather than going to see a play or staying home and you know, Netflix and chill. Of course it does. It's because you obviously you want to see a star, right? Like mm -hmm. the reason I want to go see the Bears play or I want to go see the Cubs play is I want to see world-class athletes in the flesh doing what they were built to do. There is no difference between what I just said and going to the opera. At the opera, I want to see world-class athletes doing what they were built to do. And I don't see how getting rid of them, because A, you can't, but B, I don't see how getting rid of them is going to like change the way that opera is, is produced. Well, it, it totally depends on where you're seeing opera. Mm -hmm. I mean, we can't expect not to any shade at, you know, the smaller companies, but just as Ashley was saying earlier, there's there's companies in cities that only have one opera company and they have to serve all of the audience, be all the the neophytes and the aficionados. They have to figure out what mm -hmm. to stage to get everybody to come. And they take lots of risks by doing new music and star star singers are what's going to sell tickets, right. you know. And, uh, but those things aren't mutually exclusive, right? You can have star singers doing new music. Not all star singers do new music. That is true. That is very true. That is absolutely true. But I don't see how, like, if you're in a smaller location or a smaller setting, that that means you have to program more the war traditional... Why? Because for some people, that's the only opera they have. And that's, I mean, there's something to be said about... The classics drawing audiences, you know, like people want to see Carmen, people want to see La Boheme, they want to see the Magic Flute because it's the way they their act their first access to opera. But if they do, but if they don't know the repertoire, then they don't know what they're missing, right? There's so many levels of there's so many barriers to becoming intimate with opera, and you have to give audiences something that they can. Just latch onto easily. There has and to there be are, a hook somewhere. Yeah, and there are composers who, admittedly, are very skillful at being a first opera composer for people like I think Jake Heggie is doing it. You know, there's probably another person I'm not thinking of right now whose operas are very accessible. Um, I think Elizabeth Cree, for example, mm. was a great first opera for mm. somebody because it was like a ghost story and you know it had great graphics and the music was tuneful enough. And uh, yeah, I would I would love to see that as a first opera, but. You know, let's be real. It's like the Torridor song and like La Donna Mobile <laughs> and like Barbara Seville, you know, Figaro that are like, oh, I recognize that that's opera. And like, that's what I what I came to but see. But you can yeah. do those titles and you can tell those stories in a way that is not traditional, as she would say. 
And it certainly isn't racist. I mean, look, none of us are advocating for racism or sexism or harassment in opera, which is what this article talks about in part, right? Like, obviously, we want to get rid of the people that are perpetrating that. That's not what we're looking for here. Right. But that's a different topic. That is a different topic. And so I'm just, we're, I think I answered to this conversation talking about why we do the classics. It's a question of, how, it's not why we do the classics. There's a question of how we do the classics. And you can go and you can have an emotional response to uh, Carmen, to the music of Carmen without big red dresses and cigarette sellers and guys in capes. Like, you can have an emotional response to that piece, and it can be completely out of context from it when totally it was first out of created. Context, but I do think it needs to be grand because the music was, is so grand. Like, and I think there are minimalist stagings of these grand works that leave people a little out in the cold. They go expecting pageantry to some extent, and the music is giving you pageantry, but then you see a fairly stark stage. And that kind of modernization is not like that. We don't want to give people the, the effect of going to see a Carmen and then being left, you know, unmoved by it. And I think that's a real danger in some modern states. And a lot of people well. have this idea of what opera is supposed to be like, what the experience of opera is like. And that's what you're getting at, you right. know? And like this happened at Opera Philadelphia. It's like where luckily they saw Love of Three Oranges, which was a complete comedy and it was bombastic and it had so much happening on stage so that even though they were expecting as their first opera something more romantic something more magical you know they ended up having a good time because the production was just that good but i know of experiences where people people who are friends of mine from different worlds like from the restaurant business like oh you know me and so and so we're gonna go check out the opera and they go see a show at a theater i won't name from a couple <laughs> years ago and they got something served to them that was completely for people like us, like expecting mm. the audience to have, you know, to know what, what the opera was supposed to be about. But instead you get this interpretation that is whatever minimal or changes the, yeah. the, the plot or, you know, modernize it, reggae, whatever you want to call it, you know. And they didn't enjoy it and they might not go back because they thought it was going to be something right. and they got something else. That's instead. a real concern. Um, I kind of want to pivot it cause she, because the author does talk quite a bit about the racism issue mentioning the Trebco. And you've asked me plenty of questions about being a woman. So, Oliver, mm. as an Asian American, yes. how do you feel about something like Turandot? No matter how you stage it, you've got pentatonic music. You've got characters named Ping Pang Pong. Like, is this a show that... It, that is there any way of reviving the, <laughs> this show? Is there a way of doing it in a sensitive way that fits in our current society? Or I'd love to hear you weigh in on that. Well, the production that they're doing at Canadian Opera Company, which we talked about last week, um, is visually stunning. Mm -hmm. And they actually hired um, like a consultant, like a mm -hmm. racial sensitivity consultant, to try to remove some of the more explicitly racist, you know, um, characters and they even renamed ping pang and pong to like oh, bill really? and bob and jim or something like that. <laughs> um but i have to say that like you have to think about when this piece was written mm -hmm. and what was puccini's intention like you know yes if i mean if he was alive today would he be as insensitive he was jake heggie let's say that they're the same oh, they're equivalent, yeah. you know sure. jake heggie obviously is very sensitive to these things mm -hmm. and uh, if he was going to make something racist, it would be ex it would be deliberately racist, not right. because he was trying to make fun of anybody, you know. 
So what was Puccini's intention? What was Mozart's intention with Monocytos? Like, mm -hmm. there's all sorts of things like that. Like, do we think of these people as horrible people? Um, do we, are we judging them by today's standards, you know? So I'm willing to, to stomach some of these things because the art itself is so great. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't want to lose Madame Butterfly because mm -hmm. there are some truths in that music uh, that are universal even though they're told through a very narrow lens <laughs> of, of a time yeah. and a perspective that is we can see now is silly, you know? Yeah. Well put. A uh, link to the article is on our website, operaboxscore.com. Oh, we're not done talking about Are we done talking about this? It's the time block. Final, final thought, <laughs> Oliver. Final thought. I'm not going to cut you off. No, no it's just, I mean, her, her closing paragraph is, calling for the death of opera doesn't mean calling for the Met to close, nor does it mean the wholesale abandonment of composers such as Mozart and Puccini. It does, however, mean that we must no longer romanticize the bygone era of opera's so-called golden age so much that we fail to imagine the, the genre's future. Uh, and I think we sort of got there a little bit. <laughs> Olivia, I hope so. Um, well, you mentioned both Mozart and Puccini. So yeah, I think really maybe there's, because I just read that so in my head. Going um, off the checklist. You nailed yeah. it. But I mean, like, I, I mean, we talk about, I mean, this is just really inside baseball for our podcast listeners. Like, I'm very conservative. Like, as far as, like, how this panel is built, um, you know, I'm the person that loves old things and I want things to be traditional. That's and I one want, of the reasons we I, love you. I want mm -hmm. to preserve things the way they can be at their best when they're presented traditionally. I'm not against modern production. I'm not against new operas, but those are not the things that I'm attracted to. I have mm -hmm. to be, you have to work doubly hard as a new opera to get me to like you, you know, if we're talking like they were people, you know, whereas I will, I'm already going to like Marriage of Figaro, even if the production is bad, I'm going to like it because I love that music so much, <laughs> <Right>. you know, <laughs> just like I like frat boys, you know, like they're, <laughs> they're probably going to be racist and privileged and, uh, you know, um, what's this entitled, but because you've got those shoulders and that square jaw, I'm going to like you, you know. I, now I think we Another can... Another Oliver right? contribution. I think we, <laughs> <laughs> All right. Domingo goes too late and Giordani goes too soon. That's up next. Only on Opera Box Score, WNUR 89.3 FM and HD, Northwestern, Evanston, Chicago. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Is it an opera about a dragon and an inebriated knight? Or a parody of Handel's Grand Italian Opera? Or is it satirizing the first prime minister of England? Is it Game of Thrones? It is Game of... No, wait a minute. It's not, Oliver. It's not Game of Thrones. No, no, no. It's about dragons. Go on. In fact, the dragon of Wantley contains all three of these operas. I knew it. So and it satirizes English politicians. Is that what you were saying? Brexit. Okay. <laughs> so it's like a Gilbert and Sullivan. He was so ahead of his time. Go on. And you could decide which. The Dragon of Wantley ran for a record 69 performances in its first mm -hmm, season. 69. In 1737, and would run for another 45 years at Covent Garden. 45 years? How come we haven't heard of this Wait, opera? 45 years? It ran it's for what 45 years. I, I mean, I was alive, right? Back then. <laughs> I'm the oldest person in the room. It's way so. longer than Phantom. Okay. okay. So far. <laughs> Don't miss the Chicago premiere of a whimsical masterpiece. There are only two performances. Oh, whimsy. Sunday, so, October 27th, and Tuesday, October 29th. So clearly two performances is not 45 years. No, but I mean, we're trying to 
make it happen again. Like we're trying to make fetch happen, you know. Like we're trying to make Dragon of Wantley happen again. We'll have to so, start some. Exactly. Yeah. We'll so purchase two, your yeah. tickets now. The Haymarket Opera Company presents John Frederick Lampa's The Dragon of Wantley, starring Kimberly McCord, Lindsay Metzger, show. Michael St. Peter, and David Gobertson. Friend of you. Yeah. Friend of Chicago. Yeah, right. <laughs> really? Sing, singing everywhere. David's yeah. playing the dragon. Yes. Obviously. Uh, Sunday, October 27th, and Tuesday, October 29th, at the Studebaker Theater in Chicago's historic Fine Arts Building. For more information and tickets, visit haymarketopera.org. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. It's everything you need to know from the past week in opera land. Placido Domingo, who for 33 years has been synonymous with L.A. Opera, has resigned from his post as general director after multiple allegations of sexual harassment. Quote, recent accusations that have been made against me in the press have created an atmosphere in which my ability to serve this company that I so love has been compromised. Domingo wrote in the LA Times. But Domingo has announced that he's going to return to Mexico to celebrate the 60th anniversary of his debut at the Palacio de Bellas Artes. The Metropolitan Opera began regular Sunday afternoon stage performances for the first time in its 136-year history with Puccini's Turandot. It's an effort to boost ticket sales and revenue. Italian tenor Vittorio Gigolo has returned to the stage to standing ovations at the Teatro alla Scala after having been suspended from the Royal Opera House and the Met for allegedly groping a chorus member during a curtain call of another production in Japan. A homeless Russian-American woman was singing opera in the L.A. subway when an admiring police officer asked if he could tweet a video of her voice in just one day. The video of her voice echoing on a subway platform opened a floodgate of online donations and paid singing gigs. American tenor Brian Register is set to make his role debut in Dvorak's Ruzalka next week at the Opera Nationale du Rhin. Tenor is uh, stepping into the role just a few weeks before opening night, and he's going to learn the opera in just one week. Exit stage right, Marcello Giordani, the inspired tenor who was a fixture at the Met and other major houses around the world. He died last Saturday at his home in Augusta, Sicily. He was 56. Also Italian tenor Umberto Galilli has died at the age of 85. And on this day, it's the first performances of Korngold Das Wunder der Helian. 1927, Rimsky-Korkasov opera The Golden Cockerel in Moscow, 1909, Gilbert and Sullivan's operetta Utopia Limited at the Savoy in London, 1893, and Gounod's opera Polyukta in Paris, 1878. That's your two-minute drill. This is Opera Box Score with George Cedarquist, Tobias Wright, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, Ashley Hardgrave, and Oliver the Man. Camacho. Thanks for hanging out with us tonight on Opera Box Score. That's a really hard uh, opera name to pronounce. I knew I was going to blow Pol- that. No, <laughs> Polyukt. I don't know. It's everybody. I don't know either. It's P-O-L-Y-E-U-C-T-E. So it feels like it was a Greek word that got changed to French. Yeah. And it's just, it's How a do you lot. pronounce that I was French? I was yeah. thinking like Y-E-U as Polyukt. in like Y as in yeah. I. Yeah. Or, or your eyes without the X. But yeah, yeah I, kinda, I kinda blew that one. <laughs> no, that's okay. <laughs> All right. Um at least you got the golden cockerel correct. Well yeah, yeah, but I blew Rimsky Korsakov's okay. name. <laughs> uh <laughs> Gilbert and Sullivan, oh. Utopia Limited. It's one of my favorites. Really? I I'm love not GNS. a big GNS person. Yeah, so. yeah, I've never heard of that one. That's the name of my like I'm a you know, a S corporation now for my like private uh, work and so forth, and my company's name is Utopia Limited. <laughs> I was gonna say, are you gonna start a band called Utopia Limited? <laughs> 
Kathy, what's on your mind? Two-minute drill. Man, it's a hard week for tenors. <laughs> One way or another, they're, you know, they're dropping like flies. Um, I guess what struck me was that was so interesting was the difference between uh, Domingo and Grigolo in this model. Um, Domingo was like the worst kept secret. Like everyone who may have entered his circle, every woman who may have entered his circle, people said like, hey, just watch out for that one. Yeah. Um, and yet Peter Gelb seemed like he was going to like hold on white knuckled <laughs> to keeping Domingo there. And he ended up, and Domingo decided to walk himself. But Grigolo, not saying his, it, what he did is okay, but it's interesting how willing they were to, to drop him from everything immediately. And I don't know really what to take from that, but it's, uh, to me the contrast was striking. Well, and then like he gets dropped from Covent Garden in the Met and he goes to La Scala yeah. and he gets a standing ovation. Oh yeah. Well, I was in uh, I was in Europe when the news about Domingo broke up, and uh, the people, the, the men around me, were like, "Oh, p- now they're coming for poor Domingo," and um, I may have told them off in Italian, but <laughs> it, it, it is it's a very different air there. I think the real question is like, here are these people who do fantastic things and who do terrible things, and how do we understand them as the same person? And um, both in, on both continents, I think the challenge is to recognize both aspects of that. And here we kind of lean on it's terrible. Let's put it to the side. And there they say, but it's what he does is so good. We have to keep that safe. But really, we have to find some balance um, and recognize that nobody is all one or the other. We have t- to understand people as complex. We're human. Yeah. It's um, tough. But I, I <laughs> like last week was a Vittorio Gugolo apologist. And I'm, I don't know why I did that, but... Um, I just think that he is just a silly man that needs lots of attention. Oh yeah, um, but, but that doesn't excuse his no, it behavior, doesn't at right? all. That, I, yeah. It really doesn't That's at all. Like he saying. deserves whatever happens to him. He has to. He uh, deserves those standing ovations. <laughs> <laughs> no, but if he's losing work because of his behavior, that's that's the consequence, and he has to learn. You know, for real. Somebody needed to tell him a long time ago. It's not funny. You know. Right, no. and the the fact that people like Levine and Domingo. Uh, are such, you know, as I said, worst kept secrets is because people didn't intercede. And so it's really nice to see that uh, that happening pretty early on, I think, in uh, in the situation of Grigolo. Yeah, I think he's going to be, he's going to come out the other side. Oh, yeah. yeah. But, um, yeah, that's why we need more Ashley Magnuses, like, in leadership positions. He'd be like, uh-uh, not here. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, yeah, George, can you call. He should have known better. Yeah, George, can you play our Marcello Giordani clip? Yes, oh, yeah. definitely. Yeah. Do you want to want to listen? Or do you want to talk about the man? Uh, first? Let's, listen, listen, and then we'll talk on the way out. So that was a performance from 2009 from Taormina Arte, uh, for obviously from Tosca, Le Lucevan Le Stelle, uh, with, uh, conducted by Eugene Cohn. Uh, there's a really beautiful obituary um, 
in the New York Times. And we always refer to New York Times, but uh, Zachary Wolf wrote it. And uh, yeah, he reveals that um, Giordani, you know, kind of didn't have great training. He didn't go to the conservatory. He just kind of like had this amazing voice and got cast, you know, without really having the skill set to sustain uh, an international career like he had. And so he had to go back to the drawing board and he started studying with uh, William Schumann, who is a very prominent teacher of tenors in Philadelphia. And yeah, he was able to get his voice back together and obviously was at the top of his game. And like, you know, there's so many great performances that he turned in at the Met. And like, I have a lot of friends who are obviously singers and just to see the outpouring uh, of his colleagues of how sad and sudden this was, it's, it's a real shame. And a reputation for being wonderful to work with yeah. too, you mm. know, real mm. all around guy. Man, that's always the way, right? It's like, you know, because you Creeps. said like one tenor leaves too early and one tenor like the, your lead-in was like you want Domingo to die like what were you trying to I'm get not, I don't say anyone should die I'm just saying it's like <laughs> no good deed goes unpunished mm. do you know what I'm saying like here is this brilliant tenor who as far as we know at this point right kept his hands to himself as it is and the man dies at 56 mm. you know and, and uh, Domingo's going to outlive us all probably <laughs> He's going to go from baritone to bass. And then, <laughs> and then go around and start singing soprano, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. What, what, do, what don't you do? Uh, I, I'll be honest that I, I have not watched this video uh, of the homeless Russian-American woman singing opera oh. in the L.A. subway. Should I watch this? Um, it's just a feel-good story. You well, know, it came from goodnewsnetwork.org. Yeah. So I, I thought that was like going to put a virus on my computer, which is why I didn't <laughs> click it. But but this is legit, huh? This oh, is definitely. This is yeah. for real? Okay. I did listen to it, and um, I think she benefits a lot from the echo of the subway, but the, it's still... <laughs> no, it, but but it is Kathy, beautiful. Man, nope. <laughs> I'm getting at it. It's beautiful. Like, I don't know that I'd be giving her singing gigs, but the lesson I would be taking from this is don't ignore the beauty around you. Like, the reason we have this video and the reason the story is making news is because some guy walking by decided to take his camera and try to, like, capture and share this moment of beauty that he encountered in his daily life. And I think that's the, the most feel-good aspect of the story for me. I thought it was maybe so like all of you singers out there who are not finding work and who are probably going to be homeless if you keep pursuing this career, <laughs> you might get discovered <laughs> busking. <laughs> See, well, the, the other side is like, yeah. otherwise people will, <laughs> who are busking will get the jobs that you're trying so hard for. That's what I'm hoping is not the message. And you have to start paying... Uh, an audition fee to busk oh, <laughs> application sh- fee. No, there's some cities where you have to pay like a yeah. licensing fee for yeah. it. No, that's so. the thing. That's the thing. Yeah. You have to have a five hour package too. It, so. Well, and the idea is that this guy who taped it was a cop. That kind of only added to the the feel good nature of it, right? Is like the police currently in America have this sense that these are not people that we can trust that do not have our best interests in heart and. I think that's of course. All opinions of opera box score. Fair, are not yay, you know what? Everything's everything's fair game. And here's this, here's this cop who, like, you know, does something. As he says in in the tweet, we saw with our brains, but we listened with our hearts. I'm still figuring out how you see with your brain, but everything else makes sense. <laughs> So the Met is now doing uh, Sunday matinees in a new way to make money. Yeah, I, people seem shocked by this. I think they're shocked it hadn't started until now. I get. I hope <laughs> that's why they're shocked. Yeah, I mean, d- doesn't Broadway perform twice on Sundays? 
Uh, I know it's eight shows a week, yeah. but I don't know exactly how. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think it's like dark on Tuesdays and like twice on yeah. twice well, on Saturdays like, or, or something like that. Yeah, so. it'd be like a uh, two shows on Wednesdays yeah. and, and Saturdays or something. Yeah, I mean, Saturdays I just think that it's just it's breaking some tradition. And like, I'm the one that's supposed to be conservative, but here I'm like, come on, get over yourself. Oh, of course, like, you know, <laughs> well, figure out the way to maximize what you're doing there and to get people paid. So well, if it means yeah, I think the real issue is the instrumentalists like needing their day off. Like the, a lot of the union folk who are, yeah. have that weekend, they still trying to preserve something of a weekend and so i think that was a true. lot of the reason for it true but they don't perform ever, well i guess the orchestra performs every yeah. night so no but they, it's yeah. i mean Getting it's close. obviously a brilliant move i mean if you do have children and you do want to introduce them to this art form yeah. and they are under a certain age like look they are not gonna make it through a show that starts at seven o'clock or seven thirty at night even on a weekend you know the number of times i went to see theater when i was young and I, and I was asleep, you know, because mm. I just couldn't couldn't stay awake. But this a matinee on a Sunday afternoon. I got this from the articles. Like you take your kids to go see it. You can still go home, have dinner, crank out a little homework. You've uh, seen and enjoyed an art form, and you've seen the, a classic production of Puccini's Turandot. <laughs> Not the Canadian Opera Company production. Speaking of which, it's, it was going to be one of my good calls, but I'll just <laughs> say right now, uh, the Met HD season begins on Saturday Ooh. with Turandot. Oh, yeah, we should, go, we should go for our annual date together, Aww. Oliver. <laughs> okay, thing. let's wrap, let's it, wrap up. it up. Good call, bad call on Opera Box Score. Ah, it's been good to be back here in the Lakeside studio. George Cedarquist with Oliver Camacho, Kathy O'Shaughnessy. Uh, Kathy, you got a good call or a bad call this week? Uh, Louisa Miller is coming out. on a, It's opening at the Lyric, with conducted by the incoming music director, Enrique Matola. So if you want to see a little bit of what's coming, there's something. Yeah, and that was one of our fall picks. Uh, <laughs> I'll say that uh, I'm still, you know, uh, getting over the whole Jesse Norman thing, and I've been oh, going yeah. down YouTube rabbit holes. And I found two complete recitals, and I'll give you the titles of the video so that you can um, search them on YouTube. One of them is Jesse Norman, 1985, Tokyo. And the other one is Jesse Norman and Jeffrey Parsons, J I mean, G-E-O-F-F-R-E-Y, Jesse Norman and Jeffrey Parsons, Live Schubertiade. Uh, those are two great full-length videos of what it would like to be at a Jesse Norman recital. If you're in Chicago land, October 12th, this Saturday at the Logan Center, University of Chicago, Fourth Coast Ensemble kicks off their season. It's a quartet of brilliant singers doing a variety of repertoire featuring their entire season. Definitely worth checking out. That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. General managers at WNWR, Henry Moskal and Somal Songvi. Our announcer is Norm Waddell at VoxerShorts.com. V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S dot com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts. On Twitter, we're at Opera Box Score. And please leave a review when you subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts. The great consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. For our guest co-host, Catherine O'Shaughnessy, and our in-studio guest, Ashley Magnus, I'm George Cedarquist asking you to continue the conversation about opera as the Bears continue to stumble through the month of October. We're back on Monday, October 14th, 9 p.m. Central, to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the nation's nonprofit advocacy organization, Opera America. Join us. This is WNUR-FM and HD Northwestern Evanston, Chicago, Chicago Sound Experiments. <laughs>